0: Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Here today with a special guest, Dr. Craig Keener, who is uh, one of the most prolific New Testament scholars I know of. He holds a distinguished chair in biblical studies at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, and has just come out with a new book on the historical Jesus called Christobiography. Hey, now, don't let the title scare you because uh, it's a terrific book. It's very accessible. It is, it is a pretty massive volume. Uh, but Craig, tell us in a sentence or two, what's, what's the book about and how does it help us understand the historical Jesus?
1: Sure, and, it, and it's great to be with you, Scott. the The book is, well, just looking at the way biography was written in the ancient world, most people believe that the Gospels or ancient biographies. Ancient biographies written in this period tend to be his. um, This was the kind of the apex of historiographic interest in ancient biography, and it was uh, especially true for those that were written within living memory of the subject about whom they were writing. So, what we should expect is that that the events that are reported in the Gospels are events that the writers actually believed happened, and since they were writing within living memory of the events, we should expect that just on purely historiographic grounds, they had very good reason to believe that they were right. Okay, so tell, tell me, um, no. what, what, was,
0: what was the motivation for you to undertake this particular study? Because it's pretty, it's pretty detailed. It's about how ancient biography worked and the historical reliability of that. So tell our audience a bit, why did you want to delve into this in the first place?
1: I had written an earlier book on the historical Jesus of the Gospels, arguing that the Gospels are our best sources for understanding about, about Jesus, which I think is a no-brainer. I mean, most people would agree with that in general. But... Uh, I, I was taking for granted that people understood the nature of ancient biography because I'd read most of the ancient biographies and and I was foolishly assuming that most New Testament scholars had done the same <laughs> <laughs> not, not so much uh, not, not not so much so uh, you know, I realized afterwards that wasn't that really wasn't wise I mean New Testament scholars have plenty to read they can't read everything so uh, I, I did a more in-depth study testing how reliable ancient biographies in this period were, especially those written within living memory of the subject. After I did that I, I invited some of my doctoral students. I said well you know for the, this PhD seminar on uh, historical Jesus, if any of you want to write on this, here's a subject that, that where ground still needs to be broken and so they they explored other, ancient biographies from this period and by the time we were done I mean it was pretty obvious that these are historiographic works I mean biographies by their nature works about a recent historical person were meant to communicate actual information again that sounds like a no brainer but um, not everybody agreed with that and so this book is meant to to show the fruits of of that labor
0: okay so I mean, I think it's... it's, The the, the average person, I think, tends to be a bit skeptical about the reliability of ancient history. Sort of the the farther back we go, the less reliable it tends to be. And they don't, you know, the ancients didn't have a lot of the conventions that we have today for recording history. Um, So, and I think some people have suggested that the Gospels really fit the genre of sort of what we would consider to be historical novels better than... A, better than factual biographies. How, how would you respond to that?
1: Well, th- there's actually two questions there. <laughs> um, the, the one is, and you may have to remind me of the second one after I finish with the first one, but uh, I am an absent minded professor. But <laughs> the, the nature of ancient historiography, I mean, most of our ideas of critical historiography actually go back to Polybius and other ancient critical historians, I mean, they developed a lot of the methodology that we use today. Obviously, they didn't have, you know, means to videotape or things like that, but they, they did try to be critical with their sources. They did prefer the sources closest to the events. They did prefer eyewitnesses, wherever they could get those. I mean, they, they understood that, you know, you have to, you have to test your sources. So um, we, we do have that.
0: So the so the the, the, the ancients actually invented some of the conventions for for writing history that are still in use today.
1: Yes, yes. Now that's not to say they always followed them consistently. (laughs) Neither do historians today always follow them consistently when you check up on them. But um, you know, and they didn't have footnotes or they didn't have the the way to access masses of information that we can electronically Mm -hmm. today, and so forth. Obviously. But the, the issue is not how long ago something is. Like there's something from Wesley's journal from 1742, uh, December 15th and December 25th, 1742, that I often allude to, you know, and people say, well, that was hundreds of years ago. It was from his journal written on that very day. So it's just as much a firsthand account as something that was written Yesterday. In somebody's journal and it's more of a first-hand account than somebody remembering something that happened a year ago you know so so the question is not how long ago it was the question is more what's the distance in time between the events and the records of the events or, or the sources of, of those records on which we draw and you know if, if we're talking about sources that depend on eyewitnesses then you know, we have some good sources.
0: Okay. And the time period's pretty short in, but, in, in the case of Jesus yeah, and but, the Gospel writers.
1: But by the standards of ancient historiography, almost whenever you date the Gospels, I mean, there were a few people in the, in the um, 19th century who wanted to date the Gospels very late. David Friedrich Strauss wanted to date them in the mid-2nd century. There's virtually nobody today, almost nobody, who would date any of the Gospels that late, and nobody who would date by any means all the Gospels that late. I mean, the average critical dating for Mark is is four decades after Mm -hmm. the ministry of Jesus. Now, today we depend most heavily. I mean, if we want to know about Alexander the Great, it's not our earliest biography of Alexander, although it's one of our earliest, but it's, it's considered the most reliable ancient biography about Alexander the Great. It's from about 400 years really? after Alexander the Great, but oh. it depends on earlier sources. But we're talking about Mark is like one-tenth of that time. So, you know, the, the, the span of time in terms of ancient biographies, we do have some that are from within like half a century, but not, not a whole lot. So these are among the, the biographies that are closest to mm-hmm. the biography okay. among ancient sources. All right.
0: So when, when, the, when the readers of the Gospels in the first century, they were familiar, I take it, with the, the genre of ancient biography for, yes. for the most part. What, what would they have expected in terms of historical accuracy yes. uh, in, the, in the Gospel records?
1: Yeah, um, and actually let me uh, try to weave into that coming back to... The second part of oh, the yes, earlier sorry, I question. Forgot the second. <laughs> well, I think we're both professors, right? So, um, the the idea of historical novels. Now, most novels in antiquity were romances, which is a feature you know notoriously lacking in the Gospels. But, um, but there were a handful of novels about historical characters, but none of them about recent historical characters, and most of them seem to be kind of like you know how the Da Vinci Code talks about, you know, it subverts historical markers, says, you know, this was researched and so on. Uh, well, we don't for that reason go around dismissing most things that claim to be history. We recognize this is subverting those markers. The the handful of historical biographies or uh, not historical biographies, but uh, historical novels or biographic novels in antiquity are or that kind of thing. They're subverting the markers, but, you know, the standard genre, the the, the the mainstream of ancient biography was not like that. And if you trace biography from an early period to a late period, um, from what we might call protobiography a few centuries before the Gospels to a form of hagiography in late antiquity, you know, the period from... Like hundred years before the Gospels to 100, 150 years after the Gospels, was really the apex of when biographers were following the most uh, historical protocols. Uh, and, and here I'm speaking of full length biographies, not you know the snippets where you've got like a paragraph here, or, you know some some things that are just a couple paragraphs. Oh, I'm sorry, and I and I didn't answer your main question there.
0: So, what, yeah, what were the readers have expected in terms of his, historical accuracy?
1: Well, they they understood that biography was an information based genre. Um, you know, if you if if you have members of a philosophic sect writing about the founder of their movement, they're going to give you information that they've received. I mean. They'll select what they're going to give you. They're going to shape it rhetorically, you know, to communicate it. But it's going to be based on information that they've received. Now, if that figure was a few hundred years before, you know, some of that may be legend. But if that figure was within living memory, chances are you've got pretty accurate accurate information. Now, the the gospel,
0: I mean, it's undeniable that the gospel writers had an agenda. Yeah. And, And it was, I think... I mean, I've I've heard some people suggest that their their agenda actually was actually more about proclamation mm-hmm. than about simply recording history for history's sake. Yeah, uh, but they had they had an agenda, uh, and that would I mean that would seem to be especially true in the account of, in the account of the miracles mm-hmm. of Jesus. Uh, why doesn't that agenda that they had compromise their historical reliability?
1: pretty much all ancient historians and biographers had agendas. Um, many of them will tell you up front that we are recording these things for the sake of public morals. So you can learn um, you know, from good examples and from bad examples. So, I mean, they often had a moral agenda. Sometimes there's a theological agenda. Um, Josephus certainly had that when he's when he's writing he's a first century jewish historian and he's defending sometimes the jewish god against the charge of having abandoned his people and showing well look we were the ones who messed up and so you know the judgment came on us rightly uh, so don't don't disbelieve in our god because of that the the gospel writers are proclaiming but that doesn't mean they're making up the information in the proclamation and I believe they had good reason to believe what they did. I mean, if you've seen Jesus alive from the dead and he's commissioned you to go tell the world, chances are you're going to want to proclaim that too, but that doesn't mean you made it up.
0: Okay. Yeah. In fact, I think yeah, I think you can actually make an argument that, that the importance of that proclamation actually suggests yeah. that they would be truthful.
1: Yeah. The content. Instance. The content of it is all about, you know, correct information. <laughs>
0: Well, it wasn't. It was. It wouldn't have been out of reach for critics of Christianity in the early days to have been able to debunk information that the gospel writers had put out there, had it been false. Yes. I mean, there was. I mean, there were a lot of people with a lot of incentive yeah. to debunk the story yeah. uh, as it was coming out, and the, and I think the gospel writers too had. You know, I mean, every time they felt the pain of persecution. Yeah. They had plenty of incentive to make sure that they had gotten the story correct. Yes. So, I mean, it seems to me those incentives work on, on both sides. That's true. Um, so, so, the fact that they had an agenda is not, it's really neither, would you say, neither here nor there when it comes to the gospel's historical reliability?
1: Yeah. Um, we, we, we want to hear what the, well, there's two levels. As, as Christians, we actually, you know, we believe their agenda is inspired. We want to hear their message fully. Historians, and I'm also a historian, as historians we want to probe and see what's the information that we can get. Um, and so we may be asking for... Uh, okay, so here's the, here's the information, disciples say they saw Jesus alive from the dead. proclamation that goes with it, he's therefore exalted Lord of the universe. Um, Historian will say, okay, well, as a historian, I'm not going to talk about that part. But look, this is what Mm -hmm. the disciples say they saw. And here's all this evidence that talks about their experience.
0: Okay. So let's let's go back. I mean, New Testament scholars, gospel scholars, they're all over the map in terms of what what they think actually really <laughs> happened in the yes. life of Jesus. But there are certain facts yes. about the life of Jesus that you, you maintain that, that virtually every New Testament scholar, except yes. those that are really out there on the margins, <laughs> would, would agree to that were a part of the life of Jesus. What, what are those things that virtually every New Testament scholar agrees on were a part of genuinely historical facts in the life of Jesus?
1: Just for a sample of those, Jesus was from Nazareth. Virtually nobody disputes that except the handful of Jesus mythers who deny that Jesus existed, you know. But um, Jesus was from Nazareth. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. He was baptized under John. He taught in parables and riddles and obscure sayings, sometimes uh, proverbial like sayings. Uh, general uh, aphorisms. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Uh, Jesus was from Galilee, and he uh, was crucified uh, close to Jerusalem. He was... Um, well, most most scholars would agree also that there was a, a, an element from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, J- Jesus was known as an experienced as a miracle worker. Uh, Now that's usually the case usually agreed even by those who don't believe in miracles, who don't believe God did it. They believe that Jesus was somehow experienced that way by He was was
0: recognized that way by the people who followed Him.
1: Yeah, healer and Mm -hmm. and exorcist and that Jesus' disciples claimed to have an experience which they actually believed that they saw Him alive from the dead. So you know, there's a lot, a lot there yeah, that's, to work that, with. That's
0: quite a lot. I mean, yeah. you, could, you could, I mean, you can make a very vibrant gospel presentation out of what virtually every New Testament scholar agrees to, yeah. regardless of the critical lenses with which, through which yes. they view the gospel accounts. Now, you you maintain in your book that some of the material in the gospels is not in strict chronological order. Right. Um, can you give me an example? Give us an example of Maybe an episode that appears one way in one of the Gospels and appears in a different order in another Gospel.
1: Yeah, an easy example of this would be, like Matthew has Peter's mother-in-law healed after, after the cleansing of the leper. Mark has the mother-in-law healed before the cleansing of the leper. So did Jesus have to heal Peter's mother-in-law twice? Uh, did he have to cleanse the leper twice? Or in Mark, Jesus stills the storm, delivers the Decapolis demoniac after telling certain parables. In Matthew, he does it way after these, you know, several chapters after recounting the parables, and and a number of other examples could be given. There was a, a writer in the Reformation period by the name of Osiander who Because he believed that the Gospels had to be in strictly chronological order, he ended up to try to harmonize them. He had Jairus' daughter raised from the dead three times. So obviously she must have still been sick (laughs) each time you raised her. Yeah, That's that's kind of a problem. Yeah, Calvin and Luther said, you know, "This this is nonsense. You know, they didn't feel compelled to put all this in chronological order. Ancient biographers, that wasn't part of the expectation. I mean, a lot of times they have anecdotes. People remember this incident, that incident. They don't necessarily remember in which order they happened. And so nobody really expected these biographies to to be in chronological order, unless they're saying, you know, this happened on such and such a date or something like that. Now,
0: now uh, one of the Gospels, say, like Luke, for Mm -hmm. example, claims to be in more chronological order. Is that true?
1: Well, he says... Those who wrote before him weren't, weren't doing it in, in order. He's going to do it in order, but there's a question as to whether he means chronological order or rhetorical order. I see. He does follow the sequence of Mark pretty closely, with a few exceptions. Um, and where we can test him, he follows a sequence similar to Matthew. But Matthew, Matthew even rearranges Mark topically, and and that's not uncommon. I mean, Suetonius, Suetonius, who was a a Roman biographer, he's got, you know, his material is arranged topically. And even Philo of Alexandria, when he's talking about Moses, he's got a topical section and a chronological section. And even some of his chronological section, it, you know, he moves things around for, for uh, topical sake.
0: Why do the Gospel writers do this? Why, why, do, they, why do they arrange things differently than, than what the... What will be accepted as the correct chronological order?
1: Well, I'm not sure they always knew what the correct chronological order was. In the sense that you've got these different anecdotes, and you don't you don't know necessarily in which sequence they go. Papias, when he writes about Mark, and again, this could refer to so, so a
0: source for the, one of the sources for the, the Gospel of Mark.
1: Uh, well, pa- pa- Papius writes about one of the sources for the Gospel of Mark. Papias is writing in the early second century. He's probably writing within living memory of Mark. And Papias says that Mark got his material from Peter. Uh, he wrote it down, the things that Peter said, but not in a particular order. Obviously, you know, the passion comes right. after that, the, the public ministry and so on. Um, now, is that chronological order or is that rhetorical order? You know, that's, that's a matter that, that scholars dispute. But it's not clear that... You know, I mean, the way human memory works, we we remember incidents, but we don't always remember when something happened. Putting them in chronological order can be can be somewhat difficult. So, in the, in the case of um, Matthew, it's like Matthew. Actually, you can almost arrange with a hierarchical outline, which you can't do with Luke. Which, and,
0: which means, what do you mean by that,
1: um, Matthew? You know. When you make say a sermon outline, you know you have point one, point two, mm-hmm. point three, and then subpoints. Matthew arranges his gospel that way, and so you've got more of a topical, not not completely, but you've got more topical arrangement. Okay, so than the material is
0: arranged in order to make a point, right? Or in order to have a certain structure to to make a point. Yes. Um, now I, I can I can see where critics of the Gospels might say that things being out of order uh, just reflects sloppy history, and is not you know is not something you would expect out of the inspired and errant Word of God. You know how how would you respond to that?
1: I would say that they're judging the Gospels by anachronistic standards, by standards that didn't exist in antiquity because. That's not how biographies were written. Nobody expected biographies to be written that way. And so people who do that, I mean, they would have to do that basically with ancient biography in general, uh, ancient historiography in general. The, the, The expectation should be that the information is correct, not that it is in a particular order. The Gospels aren't claiming that it has to be all in in this particular order. Well, and
0: I suspect that there are modern biographies that are not in strict chronological right. order either. I mean, they're done for, like as you, as you suggest, for rhetorical reasons. Yes. In order to make a, a bigger point. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I can see where some, some biographies I suspect that they are written just to record history. But... I, most of them are written to make some sort of a moral or, you know, or a, you know, some sort of point about the life of the person who yeah. the biography is about. And, and so they, the authors, I think, would have the same kind of rhetorical intent yeah. that ancient biographers had.
1: Yeah, and especially on the level of popular biography. Now, in terms of, of academic biography, the standards are a bit different. But even there, I mean, they're written from different perspectives so that you've got... Uh, biographies of Lincoln with very different perspectives, and in different periods mm-hmm. since Lincoln, people have had different views of Lincoln as well. That where it's been used for rhetorical purposes to, you know, address the the times. Uh, Lincoln, the liberator. Lincoln, the the um, um, you know, very various different views of Lincoln, um, and some. Um, what Barry Schwartz, is a memory theorist, who's written on that. He's also written on the Gospels, and. He really kind of debunks this. Uh, he, you know, Some people actually cite him to say, well, memory isn't perfect, it gets reshaped. He says, yeah, but that doesn't mean the information isn't there. And he says that about the Gospels. Yeah, they're making a point, but that doesn't mean that, that they're making up their information.
0: Okay, Yeah. in fact, as, as we've already said, I think this, is, this side is a really important point for our listeners. The fact that they're making a point, I think, actually reinforces the need to be historical acu- historically yeah. accurate rather than necessarily yeah. Undermining. Now, Craig, what about the words, the spoken words of Jesus as recorded mm-hmm. in the Gospels? I mean, we've got different versions of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Matthew has an account of the Sermon on the Mount. For example, mm-hmm. Luke has an account of the what's called the Sermon on the Plain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot in common, right. but there's also a lot of difference between, yeah. between those two. Now, they may have been given on two different occasions, but they also could just as plausibly I think be two mm-hmm. different recountings of the same basic same set of teachings of yes. Jesus and a lot of teachings of Jesus are like that there's a lot of variation mm-hmm. among the gospels um, and so it sort of begs the question did did the gospel writers record the exact words of Jesus and would their readers have expected that or is that expecting too much out of a out of a out of a a culture at the time that didn't have they didn't have a tape recorder that they could put in somebody's face or a you know a camera you know a television camera that would run you know run and capture all this stuff um,
1: so, yeah. so which is it? There, there um, are cultures where people would insist that they were reciting entire epics verbatim and then you know once once people came to record them and they come back a few years later and say you know, do this again and they do the performance again verbatim but it wasn't the same words but verbatim meant something different in in that culture because they didn't have tape recorders for, what they meant was here's the substance you know the gist was the same mm-hmm. and so the same people who point out yeah you know, there are differences in wording point out that the gist is the same except for the people who try to distort that to say ah oh, no see the the gospels and these and these what they sometimes degrade as you know, primitive or backward cultures, uh, very, very elitist standpoint, um, they, they, they ignore the part of the, the side of the research that says, no, the gist is the same. The gist is what had to be the same. And so, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, you have some material in, in the Sermon on the Mount that actually appears elsewhere in Luke or some of it elsewhere in Mark. Um, and... What that shows us is, yeah, this is material from Jesus, but again, things didn't have to be in chronological order. We actually have rhetorical handbooks from the day that talk about how to move these things around. So um, it doesn't have to be in sequence. As far as it being verbatim, nobody expected that. Um, they, They understood better than most people today have understood, except for those who've done these psychological tests of memory, that gist memory is a lot better than verbatim memory. So, you know, I mean, if you tell your kids the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, you don't have to use the same wording every time to tell the same story. A parable of Jesus could be recounted over and over again. It doesn't have to be given the same wording every time. So if it's somewhat different from one gospel to another... Nobody was going to complain about that unless they were like, you know, antagonistic towards Christianity and looking for, for holes that they could, you know, stick their uh, hooks in. But, um,
0: but it sounds like that, you know, the the, the the audience for for these critics would not have been particularly responsive to that criticism because they didn't expect
1: nobody expected that.
0: They uh, didn't uh, expect a verbatim. Recording of
1: that. You, you look at what Josephus does with the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he, he follows the substance of it, but he freely paraphrases it, and it was actually expected that you were supposed to paraphrase it. Uh, this is the sacred scriptures. He's paraphrasing, he's putting it in his own words. Our ancient rhetorical handbooks tell you you're supposed to do that. The Gospels actually paraphrase less than was standard and conventional of the time. I mean, they're closer to, you know, each other than, than was the expectation. So Matthew has kingdom of heaven, Mark has kingdom of God. That's not an error. That's, I mean, that's just, you expect that. And, and people who don't recognize that, it's a very ethnocentric and anachronistic way of reading. So
0: it's not, I mean, it sounds like we've got, we've got a lot that we can learn. Yeah. from the conventions of ancient biography. Yes. And it sounds like what you're suggesting here is that the more we dig into these conventions, the, the more trustworthy the Gospels end up being historically. And the more careful we ought to be not to hold the Gospel writers to uh, what you call, I think correctly, anachronistic standards. Yes. that weren't, We can't hold them to standards of accuracy that are in existence today that they didn't yeah. have access to at all in the first century.
1: Yeah, I mean, we keep... Our standards keep changing. The way we do historiography changes over time. And so, you know, a hundred years from now, somebody may come along and, and say, well, you know, the way they recorded things in the early 21st century is just not, not appropriate. Well, maybe not appropriate for then, but it's the way we would communicate today. And, you know, people who are historically sensitive recognize... That anachronism, anachronistic approaches are are inappropriate. Well, I think this, Craig,
0: this is really helpful. I think for many of our listeners to not only to answer some of the common criticisms that are made of the gospel, but to reinforce their own sense of the historical reliability Mm of the 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 accounts of the life of Jesus. So there's there's a lot more to talk about here. I want to let our listeners know uh, we're going to do a part two. Of this. So I've got lots more questions for Dr. Keener on this terrific book called Christobiography. Uh, So be sure and be sure and join us next time as we continue this conversation with Dr. Craig Keener. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. Be sure and listen in next time as we invite Dr. Keener back to continue this important discussion on the historical Jesus and the conventions of ancient biography to learn more about us and to find more episodes go to www.biola.edu forward slash that's biola.edu forward slash biblically if you enjoyed today's conversation give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend thanks so much for listening and remember think biblically about everything